Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by a scholar who's taken her work to the front line of London's gentrification struggle. Dr. Fatima Regina is a Legacy in Action Research Fellow at the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre at De Montfort University. I met Fatima as she was completing her PhD at London's SOAS University on British Bangladeshi Muslims and their changing identifications and perceptions of dress and language. She's also worked as a research assistant at the Institute of Criminology at the University of Cambridge, looking at police and counter-terrorism, and has taught at SOAS and Kingston University in London. She is also a founding member of Nijur Manouche, which is one part of the Save Brick Lane campaign, a coalition of groups who joined together to oppose a planning application to build a large corporate office building with a retail parade in the heart of London's Brick Lane. Uh, Fatima Regina, thank you so much for joining us, Doctor. How are you? Hi, uh, Assalamualaikum and uh, good morning or good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening from. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Um, well, first off, I wanted to ask you about your interest in uh, British Bangladeshi culture. You did your PhD on changing identities around dress and language. Where did this particular interest stem from for you? Sure. Um, wow. OK, uh, so um, I so while I was doing my master's at SOAS, um, I, so I'm a qualified secondary school teacher. So I thought I was going to finish up my master's and then head back into secondary teaching. And that, that was going to be my life where I work my way up, become head of department, head of year, blah, 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 and become, you know, assistant head, whatever, um, down the line and retire. But um, during my master's, I started looking for, um, I spoke to one of my um, supervisors um, for my major module that I was doing at SAWAS. And he just said to me, listen, there's a scholarship going for British Muslims to study British Muslims, which was the Nahud scholarship. Um, and I said to him, I remember saying to him, look, I'm actually not interested in pursuing a PhD because, um, um, you know, they talk about, you know, people of colour in particular and, and even more amplified for women of colour, the sort of imposter syndrome of feeling like you don't belong in, uh, you know, academia and that it's not for you. And I was also very conscious of many other elements to do with, uh, with pursuing a PhD and the sort of lack of funding and so on and so forth. And anyway, so he was like, you know, apply for it. So I came across this scholarship at SOAS and then I came across another scholarship um, at the Institute of, um, I'm not sure if I should name them, or maybe I should, Institute of Ismaili Studies. Um, they had a scholarship uh, where you could research whatever you wanted. So initially I wanted that scholarship because I wanted to research the Muslim community in Argentina uh -huh. um, because Wait, I had lived there. Lived, right? Yeah, yeah. So I lived there and, um, you know, I met the Muslim community. So I thought, you know what, I I'd love to do some some work around, you know, particularly the Arab Muslim community in Argentina and then maybe expand it into Chile and Uruguay and, you know, the neighbouring countries, uh, potentially Paraguay as well. Um, so then I applied for the Nahud Scholarship and, um, and they wanted you to study 
as a British Muslim to study something specific to do with the British Muslim community. And um, I've never been into economics, so that was never going to happen or any kind of business angle or I was always deeply entrenched in sort of social sciences. So I knew it would be something very much sort of sociological, or so, uh, sort of um, socially sort of um, anthropological project. So, you know, I thought, you know what, I've always found it really intriguing just looking at my own family history. And this is where this sort of particular topic came about was um, looking at sort of my own family pictures of how men and women dressed in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even up until the 90s and how that sort of uh, slowly transformed, um, as cliched as it sounds, following sort of 9-11. And what that involved was, you know, um, so a lot of South Asians will be able to relate to this. You know, a lot of a lot of our grandmothers and mothers wore their saris or shawar kameezas with long trench coats. That's what, you know, when you look at old pictures, archival footages of uh, South Asian women, that's how they dressed. And and my my family was no no different. And then I thought, you know, um, however, even in the colonial period, you saw imageries of Bengali men and Bengalis were one of the first uh, sort of, uh, you know, major ethnic groups who were in direct contact with the British, you know, officials and, uh, you know, uh, the East India Company. But um, but they would wear, they wouldn't wear their dhotis or their longis. They would wear, you know, um, try to imitate the English, become an English babu, you know, to try and look like the Englishman. Um, so, yeah, so I was just intrigued by all of that, by dress and language as well, because I remember... Um, growing up myself, when we went to uh, Tajweed classes or Arabic classes after school, it was split up. So half of it was you learning Bangla, how to read, write, speak Bangla properly, fluently, using the appropriate terms, so on and so forth. And then um, half of it was then Arabic. So we learned how to recite in Arabic, how to uh, pray, how to um, how to uh, understand, you know, uh, meanings of, of of the way things were put together. And interestingly, I learned Arabic through. Uh, Farsi and Urdu. So it wasn't that I, so, so for example, instead of saying Fatha Damma Kasra, I learned it through um, Zabar Zer Pesh, right? That's what you say in, in, in Urdu and, and Farsi, I believe. Oh, yeah, so, it yeah, sounds so, like so Farsi to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we would say Alif, Alif Zabar A, Ba Zabar Ba, Ta Zabar Ta. So it was never, you know, using Fatha, for example, to say, say it. Um, of course, I, I, I know this has changed now. There is an emphasis more on Arabic than there is on Persian or sort of. Uh, that sort of, uh, you know, because we did pronounce it also in very, if you want to say, Urdu Persian ways. So sometimes when I recite, it sounds like, you know, I very much sound like I'm from that part of the world. Um, Mm. So, so yes, uh, but now you don't have Bangla classes, for example. Um, So after school classes that young uh, Bangladeshi Muslims go to are just Arabic. That's it. No emphasis on Bangla. Um, So I guess, yeah, from a personal interest and, 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 and this whole scholarship opportunity coming up, Although my eye was on the other scholarship to look at um, Argentina, uh, but then this I got this scholarship and I didn't get the other one, and I just thought, you know what, let's give it a go. And then you know, here I am uh, in academia. So there's so many things I want to uh, p- pick up on. I mean, I, you said that um, styles had changed after mm-hmm. 9/11, and I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, you know, mm-hmm. maybe not the why, but possibly the why, but also yeah. how. So, 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 what change do you see in people's dressing styles post 9/11, and and why do you think that change was happening? I think, I mean, obviously there's there's so much literature on this, on looking at sort of people sort of um, changing um, relationship with their faith and their faith becoming the sort of uh, primary marker of their identity within the public, um, the public sphere as well as the private sphere. Um, so actually there was a, um, there was a very clear 
sort of um, acceptance of, of, you know, you know, I'm a Muslim inside my house, but I'm also a Muslim outside my house. So I will make this the most visible marker of who I am and, and what I'm about. Um, so, so one of the things that I was trying to pursue in my PhD as well, particularly with the women, um, because as we know, uh, particularly with Islamophobia, a lot of attacks tend to be targeted at visibly Muslim women. So I asked them, for example, you know, so where are your saris now? Like, when do you wear them? Where are your shawar kameezes? Um, because if we look at South Asian history or South Asian Islamicate history, you find that the shawar kameez was marked as the, the Muslim dress, you know, because um, there's some phenomenal research that I came across during my PhD. Um, I can't remember the academic's name right now, who's based at Goldsmiths. But um, she did some work where, where she interviewed um, upper caste Brahmin priests in India. And, uh, and, and this one particular priest, I remember it so clearly because I used it in my PhD. And this, this Brahmin priest said to, uh, said to her uh, during the interview that, look, I don't want my daughters to wear the shawar kameez because, you know, we're Brahmins. We wear unstitched clothing. You know, we don't, you know, and plus the shawar kameez is a Muslim dress. Um, so just to clarify for people who might not know what that okay. looks like, what is the shawar kameez? Sure. Um, so uh, the sari is firstly a sort of, um, uh, depending on which part of the subcontinent you're from, uh, it's either six yards long or nine yard long uh, cloth, essentially, that you wrap around. And you can wear it in multiple different styles. And that's usually based around your your caste um, uh, and also your class background, your regional background, your ethnic background. So that informs how you wear it. Um, and then the shawar kameez is a three piece suit. Uh, so it's like a long dress. Well, it can be long or, or short. With a, with, a, uh, with a shalwar, so a trouser. So you have the kameez, the trouser is a shalwar, and then you have a scarf that usually South Asian women, again, depending on which group they're from. So for example, mostly Sikh Muslim women, when they wear shalwar kameez, they usually have like the scarf over their head and have it sort of over their shoulder. Um, whereas with, um, it, it becomes slightly more complicated with, uh, if you want to say Hindu women, uh, depending on, again, Cast class can inform how you wear it, um, and and if you even wear it, um, if it's if it's deemed as acceptable or not, because it's projected as a Muslim dress. Um, mm. So yeah, so I, I guess uh, to answer your question, um, yeah, people felt the need to sort of um, you know defend, justify, you know, speak for Islam overnight, you know, and um, and and becoming a visible Muslim became that that sort of powerful tool a lot of people felt was necessary to, um, you know, help um, sort of uh, project an image of Islam and Muslims of not being violent, which is obviously um, problematic because it means you're accepting the premise that Muslims are violent in order to want to then, you know, oppose that. So I think, um, you know, it, was, it, it came from a place of defense and also uh, politically speaking, but for a lot of people, it also became an, an, a moment of awakening of sort of, you know, oh, I've grown up with this faith being given to me, but mm. not really learning about it. So you could look at it from multiple angles. Here, yeah. Mm, that's so interesting. And I, I relate in some ways, of course, because uh, although I wasn't uh, raised in the faith, having adopted it, I then definitely post 9-11 felt the needs that you've just described to sort of represent it in a way that was like no we are proudly Muslim but we're not those people those people over there that's not mm. us and, and like feeling the need to represent an alternative that would allow people to recognize that that conflation that was so often made was was false and and um offensive and misleading mm. and, and dangerous actually if we look at it on a geopolitical uh, level. Um, you uh, were born and raised in Luton, is that right? Yes. 
Um, and your own background is British, uh, Bengali, Bengali, Bengali. I mean, either goes. So I'm not. I'm not fussed. So yeah. <laughs> and but there's there's a history, isn't there, between behind this this Bengali Bengali thing? Because I I'm always treading carefully because I know some people feel very strongly about the Bengali term, and then other people are definitely yeah. like, no, it's definitely Bengali. Um, yeah, so, I so mean, I have relatives who, 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 yeah, I have relatives who sort of take the piss out of that because um, they always say, you know, Bengali is the East London Bengali's way of saying Bengali. Um, so there's sort of like this clear demarcation of who says Bengali and who doesn't. Um, but I'm personally not fast. I'm just as long as you're saying the word, I'm cool with it. <laughs> so um, did you feel any personal pressure growing up to... Uh, kind of re represent your faith outwardly in a way that you just described or was it something that you um, took a different stance on I mean how did you react to that pressure that post 9-11 pressure that I think all Muslims mm. I can't think anyone that I know who's Muslim didn't feel mm. it's really interesting you ask that question because um I mean, I grew up in a family that is, um, you know, its political allegiances, particularly in Bangladesh, are so diverse and mixed. And um, um, so, you know, uh, from supporting, you know, uh, the Bangladesh National Party, which has its affiliations with the Jamaat, uh, uh, which is, you know, the Islamist party, to, you know, people in my family supporting Awami League, which is currently in power, run by Sheikh Hasina, um, you know, which is projects itself as being more secular. So, um, so really, you know, of course, I grew up with faith, but... Um, but faith in the sort of nominal sense, you know, of, 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 of um, making sure we learn our tajweed, we learn Arabic, we knew how to pray. Um, but also there was an emphasis on, OK, but we also want our kids to know their heritage because, you know, heritage identity, you know, um, if we go by the principles of, of, of Sharia, um, you know, uh, one of them, you know, that we have absolute right over is the preservation of our heritage. Um, so I thought, you know, so for my parents, it was crucial that we were in touch with both sides and they made sure, you know, uh, so much so that at one point, because we didn't speak Bengali very well growing up, my mom literally packed our bags and took us to Bangladesh for a year and a half. Um, she said, she said to my dad, listen, uh, listen, uh, you're going to obviously do what you need to do to make sure you cater for us while we're back home. And uh, I'm going to make sure our kids learn how to speak Bengali. So we went to school there for, uh, so I did the equivalent of year seven, year eight, you could say in Bangladesh. Um, and this is why, you know, um, a lot of other British Bengali sort of mock me uh, because I speak Bengali well. So they always say, oh, you sound like my mum. I'm like, well, I take that as a compliment because at least, you know, I speak it well. Um, and and we were in Bangladesh when 9-11 happened. Oh, um, wow. So and what was really interesting was um, uh, that September was a hectic time for us because my dad's brother was getting married. And, uh, and anyone who knows about South Asian weddings that happen in South Asia, you know, they're huge functions that last for multiple days, multiple events. And obviously, you know, we were all embedded in that, right? The festivities, the, you know, all of that, the, the, the singing, the partying, the, all of that. And I remember that morning so clearly um, because when I woke up, um, I was watching, we were watching a cartoon channel. It was like Cartoon Network or Nickelodeon, one of those. And then in the corner, it said breaking news in the corner of a, of a, of a, of a you know, a cartoon channel, right? And I remember yeah. I said that, and, and I just always, I'll never forget this image of obviously the, the Twin Towers and the repetition of the, the planes flying in. And yeah. obviously now as an adult in my mid-30s, I look back and I think, oh my God, like, why would you have that on a children's cartoon channel? Like, why, what is it that, you know? So it was just so, I mean, obviously 
looking at it sort of uh, as an academic, you know, there's so much to analyze there of, of yeah. what is so wrong with, with that particular projection. Um, because we don't do that with other events, worldly events, um, you know, major events. So um, that I remember, and, 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 and I saw it, and I was like, whatever. You know, I was a child, and I was like, whatever. So I'll continue watching my cartoon. We did everything we need to do for my uncle's wedding. And then we, um, I actually, a significant part of my childhood, I grew up in, in, in Germany. So we went back to Germany after we finished up in Bangladesh. This was after a year and a half of living there. After my uncle's wedding, we moved back to Germany. And my parents decided after they landed in Germany, and this was when the Euros were, be, were just introduced within uh, the time that we were in Bangladesh. So suddenly we come back to Germany and it's no longer the Deutsche Mark that we're using. We're using, you know, Euros now. And then, um, you know, my parents so quickly made the decision, okay, we need to move to the UK. Um, because I have family here. My, my grandparents have been here since the 60s, um, particularly in Luton. Um, so my parents packed our bags and were like, look, we're, we're going to take these kids to, to the UK because we don't feel Germany is, a, is, 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 is safe enough. Okay. Um, wow. Yeah, so, so we moved to the UK. And by then, you know, me and my family, we barely spoke English because our main languages were Bengali and German. So English yeah. was never really our, our, our spoken. I mean, we knew the basics and you kind of do when you live in South Asia because, you know, uh, it's colonial yeah. history. But um, so when we moved to the UK, you left you left Germany because of, of threats. You felt that you no, 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 not threats so much, but more just feeling like I think I think there was just the, a feeling that I, I don't I, I'm not a parent, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, you know, my parents just felt that no, this is not the place to have them raise our kids. Okay, wow. And, and obviously, my parents don't ever really go into detail of of why and, and yeah. you know. Um, and, you know, maybe you can tell me, you know, I, I think maybe parents just feel they need to, you know, protect their children so they share as little as possible. Sure, so they yeah. never told us the details. They just literally packed our bags uh, and we arrived in Luton. Um, wow. And then, yeah, and then we're in a country, new country now, new culture, um, where we don't speak the language. None of us spoke English <laughs> because we weren't really in England uh, for, for, for that length of time. Um and I think, you know, my whole, me being in the UK was informed by 9-11. Um, otherwise, I would have probably been in Germany. We would have grown up in Germany and had our lives um, yeah. out there. Um, so being here was uh, because of 9-11 um, and being raised here and then starting school in a new country. I started yeah. school towards the end of year nine. And, um, you know, and, um, you know, all of our siblings had to learn English, um, you know, my parents as well. So I think, you know, 9-11 um, really transformed and shaped our lives in ways that um, was quite um, unimaginable for my, for my family, for my parents in particular, who had set up a life in Germany for us. Yeah. And quality of life is better in Germany, you know. Um, yes, it is. Particularly, yeah, particularly when you look at the UK and, and uh, you know, um, it's just never been great. When you look at basic things like housing or even accessing the food that we do in our supermarkets, you know, go to an... Yeah average asda in germany and compare that to the uk i mean quality of stuff that we buy is actually appalling i'm surprised we eat the stuff that we do yeah. from the supermarkets so much worse that we no longer have eu regulations to yeah. protect us from some of the more nefarious players in the uh, agro uh, food industry but um I, I wanted to ask you well so is i mean if there was a term that you were going to used to define the post 9-11 era or like a few terms like what how would you define the post 9-11 era for yourself or the, the wider Muslim community that you were involved in? 
Um, I mean, transformative because, you know, um, because again, growing up, my experience of Muslimness and Islam was very much, you know, particularly growing up in Germany where, it, you know, most of my friends were Kurds, they were Turks, uh, they were Arab, uh, there were a lot of Afghans and, and um, Balkan Muslims, so a lot of Albanian, Kosovan, Bosnian Muslims. Um, and, and South Asians are a tiny minority in, in, in Germany, so there weren't many of us. Um, you know, so, so, so my understanding of Muslimness and Islam was, was that, that world of being sort of Central Asian, Turkish, Kurdish, uh, Eastern European, um, you know, and then coming to Britain after 9-11 and obviously uh, the largest Muslim uh, community in Britain consists of the South Asian community and then um, being exposed to that. So for me, it was sort of this uh, massive cultural shift of, 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 of approaching Islam and Muslims. Um, but also just politically, I think, yeah, so transformative would be one of those words um, for me. But also, um, I know that this conversation is, 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 is obviously quite um, cliched for a lot of Muslims, because these are the things that we, we talk to one another about. And, you know, um, but it really did change our lives, our communities. Um, yeah. And I know, again, this is quite... Um, quite a common uh, thing you will hear many Muslims say, it really changed the way we started seeing ourselves, whether yeah. it's as individuals, whether our family units, extended family units and beyond, and, um, and transforming like mosque spaces and, um, you know, transformation of, of everything. So that's why for me, you know, the verb of, of, you know, to transform is the biggest sort of transition yeah. we witnessed um, following those attacks. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about Islamophobia, because for me, if I was going to use, if, if I think of one term that really encapsulates the post 9-11 era um, and my experience of it as a Muslim has been Islamophobia. And I know you've written a lot about Islamophobia uh, academically. You've spoken a lot about it. Um, and I was wondering also because of someone who's taught critical race studies, where you situate Islamophobia within the wider conversation on race. I know that obviously uh, you're well aware of this, but for those who aren't, that in 2019, there was an all parliamentary group here in the UK that came up with a working definition of Islamophobia shock and awe for many no doubt but there was no working definition of Islamophobia um, certainly at, at an institutional level um, and, and that definition uh, described Islamophobia as a form of racism. Um, is that a, a definition that you agree with that you recognize or uh, do you have an alternative understanding? Oh wow um, I mean you know, whenever I teach about Islamophobia, one of the things that I do with my students is I give them, you know, the different uh, definitions that people have attempted throughout the years. So I always give the definition from, um, okay, I, I can't name them because I can't think of them right now off the top of my head, but I have f four or five slides where I give different ones. And, yeah. um, and I explain that, you know, um, you know, personally, I'm not that, um, I, I try not to be too... Um, hinge too much on a definition but although I understand for legal purposes it's necessary um and, and perhaps if you spoke to a lawyer they, they'll have a whole different perception um uh, you know um insights into why that's necessary but sort of speaking as someone who's sort of you know a sociologist where I teach these things about it sort of you know um impacts on the everyday and the Muslim experience and and and, and also non-Muslim experiences of Islamophobia so I think um I, to an extent, agree with it, 
but I also have a um, close sort of, I, I also do have a preference for the uh, definition by uh, Berkeley. At University of Berkeley, they have a definition, particularly the Islamophobia, I think it's like a center they have, uh, where they have a definition, which is very long and convoluted and very academic. But um, it captures sort of where it emerges from the notion of Islamophobia mm. um, and how it's become a steady, a steady, you know, um, phobia in, in our lives. So um, and also for me, I, 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 I think it's I always try to emphasize, um, although I do appreciate this in the APPG um, uh, definition that it considers, you know, Muslimness which yeah. can be projected by anyone, yeah, uh, or rather uh, it can be ascribed to anyone. Ascribed, yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, because, um, you know, I always give these examples. Like, I remember a few years ago, I was watching, I was randomly switching through channels, watching um, a, a train was stopped somewhere uh, from one of the yeah. major uh, stations in London. Uh, someone pulled the, pulled the um, what's it called? The, that, the red uh, wire yeah. thing. Uh, th that's it. Um, and um, because um, they felt threatened by one of the passengers, Oh, so when they interviewed the passenger, and I saw the name of the passenger, it's a, it's, it was a it was a very like Hindu name, you know. Um, you know, I mean, that's not to say there aren't Muslims who don't convert from you know Hinduism and retain their old names, but um, but in this instance, I doubt that was the case. But yeah. it was just so interesting for me. And he bless him in the interview. He never ever noted the fact that he's you know, that, you know, he is Hindu uh, or, you know, um, so I thought that was quite, quite interesting because obviously to those of us who are familiar with or have grown up with, you know, uh, the Hindu Sikh and Jain community, we recognize these names, you know, we recognize the surnames, which, you know, where I can locate their caste. Um, yeah. So I, I was wow. just, I remember watching that thinking, oh my God, the world thinks this guy's a Muslim, you know, um, but he's not. And, 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 yeah. and, you know, and there have been instances where it's happened to, you know, also very visible Sikh men in particular. Yes. And, um, and they're, they're, they're clearly baptized, you know, you know, practicing Sikhs, you know, who, who have their, you know, turbans on, they have the bangle on. So, you know, that they're practicing, you know, uh, Sikh men. Yeah. So, but yet people's perceptions of seeing the turban and the beard and, you know, thinking that, you know. So I think I think when we talk about racialization of Muslims, you know, I also then emphasize, let's also remember how that changes rapidly wherever you go, right? Mm. So in France, when you think of a Muslim, people aren't thinking of a Pakistani or an Indian or a Bangladeshi, right? They're thinking of specifically a North African man. Yeah. Because of the way the French national psyche thinks of the Muslim. Or in the German context, they usually think of, of someone who's Turkish, yeah. right? Um, you know, and, and, and when you look at uh, like Spain, it's usually a Moroccan specifically, mm. right? So I think, I think you know, and, and in Britain, it's the South Asian, you know. Um, so I always try to bring that in and then also emphasize that um, because one of the things that we found from our research at the, on police and counterterrorism at Cambridge was that when I interviewed, um, so we had over 150 interviews for this project. And we, we found from our data when we interviewed black Muslim men and non-Muslim black men, what they all said uh, pretty much across, you know, and, and there were three research assistants. So, you know, all three of us, we got, you know, obviously we were, we were doing our interviews completely differently, finding out the people mm -hmm. to interview from different places, locations. What we found in our data was the black Muslim men and non-Muslim black men, all, but all of them were like, look, when people see us, people don't see us as Muslims first, you know, because because sometimes people say, well, where do black Muslims fit in? This? Yeah, right. And what, what we try to elaborate on here is that Islamophobia kicks in a lot later for 
um, black Muslim men. Yeah. Um, or rather even, you know, because of the way, you know, blackness has emerged in people's psyche of not really, of rendering people just to that. Um, because mm-hmm. what, some of the interviews that I did, for example, I interviewed sort of, um, you know, uh, 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 people from Nigeria, um, Somalia, uh, Jamaica, St. Vincent, St. Lucia, um, you know, and some of my other colleagues had people from um, Ivory Coast. So we had a whole host of countries, you know, across yeah. the Caribbean and Africa mm-hmm. that we covered. Um, and, um, and, and, and people would just say straight up that, look, people just aren't interested in our backgrounds. You know, when you're black, you're black. They're not interested in the fact that actually I'm from Somalia and we have a different experience to a Muslim in Nigeria or a Muslim in Jamaica. But people aren't interested or invested in that. So I think, you know, so, so for me, definitions sometimes obscure more than they give to people. However, I say all this, I recognise that legally you have to work with something. And perhaps, you know, for that discussion, then you need to have to speak to legal experts on how that would work in a courtroom. Yeah. Well, thank you for all of that. Um, uh, I know uh, I could talk to you about so long about this particular subject, but I do want to talk about um, the Save Brick Lane campaign that you are, of course, involved in. Um, I guess, first off, for those who might not be familiar with London's geography, um, do you want to maybe help us understand some of the history of Black uh, Brick Lane? Why is it such an iconic mm-hmm. location? Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps then we can talk about some of the uh, key historical events linked to uh, Brick Lane, because it's it is a really um, important part of the capital story, isn't it? My God, I can talk about Brick Lane and, and East London for for hours. Um, okay, so for those who who who, are, who, who, who uh, as you already said, aren't familiar with London's geography, so East London, uh, Brick Lane is located in East London, and what makes Brick Lane quite um, unique in the sense is is literally on the border of the city and and, and close to the docks of, of the East End. Um, a lot of the docks, um, you know, famously had ships coming in from, you know, uh, you know the, the uh, colonies uh, with the goods. Um, so I think um, to answer your question uh, in, 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 a, in a summarized way, if I can. Yeah. So East London is, is, is a special place um, because particularly for the Bangladeshi community. And I think it's 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 um, I don't think we, we can ever really talk about contemporary community making without talking about you know, how it came about. So, you know, East London was also the host, uh, you know, or, 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 um, you know, the headquarters of the East India Company, which went on to rule India. It had its headquarters Mm -hmm. in East London and its headquarters in in South Asia was in Kolkata, which which is in uh, India today in the state of West Bengal. Now, West Bengal and Bangladesh used to be just known as the region of Bengal, right? Mm -hmm. So that whole area. So anyone that is Bengali is either from Bangladesh or they're from West Bengal in India. And, um, and because the East India Company was uh, was um, uh, based in Kolkata, so its interactions um, with Bengali stars were pretty early on, you know. So it was in 1600 when, you know, the East India Company got its sort of stamp of approval to, uh, you know, trade uh, with and from India. So um, so that, that relationship was established in 1600, right? Wow. Um, yeah. And, you know, and... You know, following the centuries, you know, you had, you know, a lot of Lushkars, so a lot of seamen who arrived from uh, from uh, the subcontinent, and a lot of them were uh, Bengali men, uh, mostly Bengali men. Um, so, for example, when you get off at Tower Hill tube station and you see the memorial, and when you actually look at the names, a lot of the names are Bengali names. Uh, you can tell from the surnames, you know, a lot of Mia, Uddins, Ullas, um, 
uh, Das, uh, you've had Basu, so you have very, the, 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 these are Bengalis, so you'd already know that, okay, these, these men who were there and who fought who were Bengali. Yeah. So, so you know, so that relationship that, that, you know, has been there from the sort of colonial period. And then during that time, you obviously have the Lashkar seamen who work on the ships as cooks, as um, what they were known as telwala, so people who were known for putting on the oil on the, I'm guessing, the engines, um, and they were working them. Uh, because tel means oil. Um, um, so, yeah, so the, 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 so the oil person. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they were, some of them would jump ship. So when the ships arrived in the docks of the East End, they would jump ship. And they would try and make a livelihood in, in, in the East End. And they were known for marrying local women who were usually either um, Irish, English. Um, and what was really interesting was that, um, I mean, a lot of Bengalis also, um, you know, uh, uh, were coming to the East End, you know, during, the, during World War One, World War Two as well. And... Um, and what made East London particularly, um, uh, you know, a place for a lot of migrant communities um, or rather, commu- you know, different communities? I'm just very wary of the use of migrant these days. So, yeah. Um, so East London, for example, you know, it had the French Huguenots who came who were, who were uh, you know, escaping France. Then the Irish community um, following the famine. Then you had the Jewish communities who were um, escaping all the pogroms um, in, in Russia, in Eastern Europe. They were coming to East London. And, um, and a lot of Bengalis were arriving sort of um, World War One, World War Two, But in much larger numbers, you, would, you could say post sort of World War Two, they started arriving. And, and the East End is what attracted a lot of these people. It's because, first of all, it was the ghetto. No one ever wanted to go to the East End. It was mm-hmm. known as the place that is dangerous. You know, the alleyways are there. You know, Jack the Ripper stories are there, you know. So no one ever wanted to go to the East End. It was seen as the sewage of London, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's where all the poor people are. So, you know. And still are, right? It's well, still precisely, the poor in London, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and um and what's really what was really interesting was if you uh, in my lens you can go to the ragged school museum and you can look at how Bernardos you know they set up the charity to support children and 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 because kids were in ragged clothes so yeah. from the Victorian period when you look at images of the East End of young sort of English kids and Irish kids they were usually in ragged clothes and you know they were incredibly you know skinny and likely you know if if, if a medic looked at those pictures can easily diagnose them with you know various um you know medical conditions yeah and um, so so the east end was always the place that you know um you know particularly you know since britain is structured and operates through class in in every way imaginable you know those who were in in the sort of um uh, uh, you know aristocratic circles and upper class circles they did look down on there was a haughty approach to the east end uh, mm-hmm. that's where the poor people live let them manage the sewages and work through that um and I, 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 but but that's exactly what made it so vibrant is that because you know people poor people came here to make a life and once they made a life they then moved on so we saw that with the French Huguenots yeah. we saw that with the Irish we saw that with the Jewish community and now the Somali uh, Bengali community and then also the Somali community who arrived in the East End um, particularly during the 90s when the civil war um, started so the East End um, yeah very special place for a lot of different communities because it was the, the area they could afford to live in um, mm. because no one else wanted to live there. And there's um there's a building, isn't there, in East London, which kind of encapsulates the story yeah. of all the communities that come through. I mean, I don't, uh, you probably know it better than me, but the version I've got was that it started out as 
um was it, it started out as a church and then it became as a church a synagogue, a synagogue and a mosque yeah, yeah and then today it's a mosque and it like that building in itself almost tells the story of the yeah, different yeah. communities that have come to shape the area yeah. um and there's also of course been um a lot of protests um in the area um, i know you and i have previously spoken um about the murder of al-tab ali in 1978 um whose death at the hands of white nationalist teenagers they were teenagers in what was a uh, random completely unprovoked attack mm. um led to big protests against what i guess was the the, the rising tide of white nationalism mm. um in the area in in what the late 70s 80 early 80s um what would you make of the state of race relations in East London today? I mean, is mm. it still somewhere where those tensions are high? Mm. Wow, what a what a big question. Um, I mean, wow. Well, first of all, I'm going to address the first point uh, that Please it's a brick do. lane yeah, mosque. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a brick lane mosque that stands testament to the different communities who've come and gone um, from the area and the communities who are still there. Um, and, um, and what's really beautiful uh, about the mosque, when you stand by Fornia Street and you look at the top, is um, it says Umbra Sumus in, uh, in Latin, which means we are shadows. And, um, you know, and it's, 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 it's a case of, you know, the East End became that. For a lot of people, they came, they did what they did and they left and they left the shadow of who they were behind. Wow. Um, so, you know, so... so so yeah, so so in that sense, Brooklyn Mosque is testament to that. But then um, various other buildings. Um, so the London, I think it's called the London Anarchist Research Resource Centre on uh, Fieldgate Street. It also used to be a synagogue. Uh, and when you walk in, you can see, you know, um, because you can because the women used to be upstairs, men downstairs. You can see that in the building. And um, and to answer your question with regards to race relations, I think it's important to remember the East End historically has been one of the core sort of, you know, politically radical centres in the UK of how much they fought back against, um, you know, um, the state sort of um, encroaching into the area or, you know, national, the National Front or, you know, white nationalists. And we saw that in, um, in the 30s when, um, you know, the Jewish community was attacked. Um, and, you know, the Battle of Cable Street, the famous Battle of Cable Street, where, you know, various union uh, leaders, union members, people from different communities came to support the Jewish community in the East End that, look, you know, um, just leave us alone. Um, you know, we're literally, you know, tr you know, trying to make a living here, work here and just, you know, but, yet, you know, so, so anti-Semitism was on the rife, um, you know, was, was, was very high in the, in, in the 30s. Um, and there was a targeting specifically of the Jewish community in the East End. People came together. Um, so this tradition of fighting back is very much there in the blood of the East End. And, um, and race relations obviously um, didn't particularly improve with the arrival of, uh, of uh, Bengalis. And, um, and things were really tense uh, in, in the 70s and 80s, you know, 60s, where, you know, like, so I've, I've interviewed people for my PhD and postdoc um, research that I've done where, you know, people remember having, you know, um, you know, basically people shoving literally their, their, their shit through their letterboxes. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, smashing windows, smashing doors, um, trying to attack people on the, on the streets. A lot of people, you know, a lot of individuals died. Uh, from these unprovoked random attacks. Um, so Al-Tabali obviously became the sort of, um, if you want to say the last straw for people, it's like, yeah. you know. Um, and also I think it's important to also um, point out that, you know, again, bringing a sort of colonial history here, the, the British created a sort of um, racial hierarchy in, in South Asia of the martial race. 
and the martial race was was made up of the Pashtuns, the Patans, um, the the Punjabis, and uh, the Gurkhas. And there was a perception of Bengalis being, um, you know, um, what's the word, uh, effeminate, very effeminate, not particularly masculine. They're very timid, very meek. Um, <clears throat> so I think um, we saw that being utilize those stereotypes and tropes being re sort of utilized in the in the sort of East End context where people just thought oh these these men are never going to fight back they don't know how to fight back mm. um so obviously we, we saw what happened following the death of uh, Al-Tabali or, or murder of Al-Tabali but even prior to that there was a lot going on a lot of organizing um so for example in the 70s it was legal to squat so if you look at the squatters movement uh, around the east end it was it was bengali families who were squatting random buildings so you could just turn up with a mattress slam it on the floor and claim that as yours so i think um looking at you know the, the organizing that happened and the mobilizing and sort of the fight for spaces in schools um uh, which had to be done by the community also for housing and just to be left at peace so, um, you know, um, and I'm going to name her because her PhD, I, I had the pleasure of, of, of reading her PhD. Um, Shabna Begum just did her PhD at Queen Mary, looking at the Bangladeshi squatters movement. And, um, and in her PhD, she talks about how, um, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, um, because the East End uh, architecturally uh, didn't have a lot of toilets. In fact, a lot of, uh, you know, properties didn't have toilets or, or, or bathing facilities. People use oh. buckets. Yeah. Big, uh, you know, those tin buckets um, when you when you watch sort of old, old films. Um, so people had to use those buckets and heat up water and put it in there. Or you had to go to the public wash houses. So she captures stories of mothers and fathers remembering having to take their children to wash in these public wash houses. Or they would have to wait till, you know, because we're, we're not talking, you know, there weren't quick kettles back in the day. You know, people really ah. had to wait for a long period to heat up water put it in, the, in, in one of these big buckets and put their child there, bathe them. Wow. And um, so she talks about those everyday struggles. Yeah. So it's not just a, a case of sort of battling, um, you know, these, these sort of um, racism, you know, in, in, the, in the sort of, in the more, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, macro level, but also on a micro level of sort yeah. of, and then, and then she captures in her interviews of how people spoke about, we had to figure out which route we could take. We need to inform multiple families that look, we're going there. So if anything happens, you know wh where we might be, mm. or, you know, should we get attacked? So, th so there had to be a level of community, if you want to say sort of um, vigilanteism there because of protection, like, you know, it was a form yeah. of, you know, uh, you know community defense. Mm. Now, race relations, though changed following that, because um, what happened was Labour Party was not particularly supportive of the Bengali community. So but the UK it, left, yeah, just for people over elsewhere, so the UK left, well, what's considered what? to be the UK left? Yeah, uh, I think that there needs to be an emphasis on considered uh, yeah. here, uh, considered to be left. Um, and the Labour Party, once Bengali started sort of rising up and being more vocal and, and having protests and and one of the most famous protests was um, at the end of Brick Lane, north end of Brick Lane, by Bethnal Green Road, where there used to be the shop owned by uh, National Front, where they used to distribute their leaflets. And wow. the famous picture is of Bangladeshi men are just sat on the floor across Brick Lane and Bethnal Green Road. And they're like, we're sick of this. You're not going to, uh, you know, pester us anymore. And, and we're not going to basically leave Brick Lane. Like, we're not going to get up until you don't basically close up your shop and leave. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so... Um, what happened following that is a lot of um, these individuals were then co-opted by the Labour Party and became councillors. 
um, and some a lot of them worked their way up. And one of them um, actually became uh, uh, um, what are they called, like leader of of Tahamut's council at one point as well. Okay, a very significant anti-racist figure. And um, so and what happens is if we consider how um, you know when you're enveloped into the system, you're then having to work with bureaucratic structures in a way to manage racism rather than actually be at the forefront of being an anti-racist to eradicate it. Mm. So in that sense, what was being done was it was being managed. It was being structurally managed. Um, uh, and, and, and they then managed to co-opt people to do that managing for particularly a, a, a predominantly white council at the time. Then what happened was obviously in the 90s there were there were, the BNP got um, won a seat in um, Isle of Dogs in 1993 or 94 I can't remember the year now and 93 was a significant year again for Bengalis because of the death of Kudus Ali um, you know who was also murdered and um, 90s again you know we saw these individuals becoming significant figures going up the ranks in the council and more and more Bengalis were becoming councillors so if we look at Tower Hamlets now uh, the borough of Tower Hamlets in East London. A lot of the councils are Bengali uh, on various end of the political spectrum. Uh, I don't want people to assume that just because someone is uh, black or uh, Asian in the British context that somehow they're on the left. Um, you know, my skin folk are not always my kin folk. You know, so I think, um, uh, you know, I want to emphasize that. And um, so race relations, what happened then was obviously in the 90s from the state level with New Labour, with Tony Blair becoming like this poster boy for the Labour Party and the sort of um, promotion, wild promotion of multiculturalism and, and completely co-opting things like, for example, the Notting Hill Carnival, which actually emerged as a radical festival, you know, to um, challenge racism and talk about policing in the black uh, in the black community in West London. And then that was co-opted. And then suddenly, you know, uh, it's Professor Paul Gilroy who refers to this sort of period as um uh, what was it? Samosa, steel pans, and uh, uh, saris. Sar- saris, samosas, and steel pan generation, uh, where it, you know it became uh, a way of sort of essentializing communities um, and then just and celebrating their culture. So yay, let's all get into saris and wear a bunch of bindis and eat samosas and play steel pan and showcase how multicultural we are. So in the most sort of um, uh, if you want to say, you know, in the most vulgar ways of imagining multiculturalism is what was happening in the 90s. Mm. While at the same time, funding was then being offered to communities based on their um, religious or more so their ethnic, uh, what Britain classifies as ethnic communities. So if you were British Bangladeshi, you wanted to apply, you applied for specific funds. Or if you were from the Pakistani community or Indian community, blah, 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 you applied. So funding then became specifically tied to communities or particular, you know, um, expressions of identities, um, which then splintered these communities even more because 70s, 80s, we did see a strength in solidarity in sort of understanding that, listen, we're we're all in this together. And obviously political blackness was something that existed, which was where the idea that the the colour black was for the oppressed, for the marginalised. Um, But by the 90s, we saw the splintering because of the way the state started intervening and managing, managing race. Ooh, uh, that's so interesting. So political blackness, which is a, an umbrella at, in the 90s to encompass marginalised identities. 70s, become, 80s more so, yeah. 70s, 80s becomes disintegrated by the state's allocation of yes. funding to groups based on much narrower ethnic yeah. identities. Yeah. And, and with that, we see a splintering of solidarity. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
we wow. see that and, and people then start looking for uh, fundings and pots of fundings that will that will benefit their community, whatever, you know, uh, people understand by that. And I think, um, you know, so I guess to answer your question after having given a bit of the context is... Um, yes, sorry, I did it's, throw it's, a big one. <laughs> it, it is a bit, it is, um, I think what complicates it is the fact that um, so race relations, obviously, uh, it, it manifests very differently to 90s Britain, right? Yeah. Uh, and 90s Britain, obviously, race relations were very tense al also because of um, the murder of uh, Stephen Lawrence and how that, um, you know, uh, you know, kudos to his parents for, you know, holding the state to account for like, look, this is what happened and you're going to acknowledge it, which, you know, subsequently... Um, you know, saw the McPherson report, which then the inquiry, uh, which then led to the McPherson report declaring the police, the Metropolitan Police in London as institutionally racist. And that's not to say that's uh, that's not the case anymore, which it very much is. But yeah. race relations in Tower Hamlets in particular in East London, it's now being splintered across sort of, um, I would argue, from what I'm witnessing through sort of class lines. Mm. So, um, so you see, for example... Um, so when we talk about gentrification, you know, uh, we talk of the gentry class who are able to access things. That gentry class also consists of uh, racialized folks who are black and Asian. And the Tower Hamlets context, we're talking predominantly about Bengalis. So, um, so when they're that invested in the project of gentrification, they're not interested in the needs and wants of the communities. The very communities they were raised in, the very communities where they were able to access free education, where they didn't have to pay fifteen hundred pounds and then three thousand pounds or that now you know nine or close to nine and a half thousand pounds a year. So people who benefited from the welfare state, people who grew up on the welfare state are now um, pretty much supporting sort of the the curtailing of the welfare state for people who need it. Yeah. And there are those figures in Tahamlet. So race relations now is marked very much by class. So mm. that's why I can't separate the two, particularly in the Tahamlet yeah. context. So, um, so, so yeah, I hope I've answered your question. So race no, relations no, now still very much operated and managed through the bureaucratic structures of the council. Um, but the individuals are, will look like me, but mm. that doesn't necessarily mean politically we're aligned. So I think, yeah. I think you know, um, it's, it's, it's to do with vested interests, it's to do with, you know, friendships with developers is to do with, um, you know, owning your own property, therefore not seeing it as necessary to help others because you bought your property during uh, the Margaret Thatcher era where she introduced the right to buy. So people yeah. who lived in social housing, for those who don't know this uh, particular legislation, so right to buy is um, was introduced during the Thatcher, Thatcher government where if you lived in social housing, you could buy that property from your council at a discounted rate. So depending on where you lived in the country, some councils offered 20%, 25%, 50%, wherever. Um, so a lot of Bangladeshis at that time made use of that and bought their properties, who, those who could afford to. Um, yeah. you know, so they bought their properties on in and around Brick Lane in East London. And of course, those properties are worth in the millions now. You know? yeah. If you own a property on Fournier Street or Fashion Street off Brick Lane, these are literally valued at in the millions. Like Prince wow. Street, where we did one of our organizing in one of the houses, Without any work in that house, it's worth three million pounds. Three million pounds. And wow. it doesn't even have insulation, this house, but it's worth three million pounds. So, um, so it's really interesting how, you know, because people have noticed that their assets now have a particular value in the way, you know, obviously the system works now, people are invested in that. 
Mm. So, you know, so, 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 and this is where class and race, you know, merge, if you want to say. So race relations is very much informed by class now in, in, in a place like Town Hamlets. That's so interesting. And, and that leads us really nicely into what I wanted to ask you about this uh, activism you're involved in with the group. Uh, it's called Nijor Manouche. Maybe you can tell us a bit about uh, the name and sure. also the Save Brick Lane campaign mm. and for you, I guess, is is the activism that you're involved in uh, a form of anti-racism? Is it a pushback against whiteness or is it something else? Okay, so uh, so Nidra Manush uh, means um, our own people. Um, so it, it's, it's in reference to the collective, to the community. So it's not just about Bangladeshis or Bengalis, but broadly about those who are who are invested in the collective and, and about making sure, you know, everyone needs to be okay, not just, you know, me being okay, um, socially, economically, culturally. So um, so we came together, it's, it's 10 of us, uh, 10 of us uh, Bangladeshis. Uh, so it's a national organisation. Um, so we're Bengalis from different parts of, of England, mostly. Oh. And um, so we came together because... Um, you know, we, we took our inspiration from the Asian youth movements from the 70s and 80s, um, where, you know, these Asian youth movements, they, they started organizing because of the racism that they were experiencing. So you had various factions of the Asian youth movements in Birmingham, Leeds, Bradford, in, um, within London, you had um, in, in, in um, East London, obviously, you also had it in West London, particularly in Southall, where the Sikh Punjabi community were organizing. So, um, so we took inspiration from that. And we just felt like, you know, um, because so many Bengalis, we feel, are invested in this sort of um, very capitalist, hungry, doggy uh, dog world that we just felt like there just wasn't any organization around anymore that represented this sort of our, you know, sort of radical tradition. And, and considering, for example, even when we look at the colonial period, if we look at some of the sort of um, violent uprisings where violence was utilized to basically let the British know, like, you can't mess with us anymore. You know, one of the groups were the Bengalis, you know. Um, so when we look at some of the um, uh, violent uh, activities, physically violent um, uh, shootings and killings of British officers, they were done by, a lot, you know, Bengalis and even Bengali women. Um, so, um, I mean, one of the best examples I can give, which... Uh, one of the journalists in Britain who happens to be uh, Bengali also, Ash Safa, speaks about one of her great-great-aunts. Mm. Uh, Lata Vadedar was one of those Bengali women who shot uh, British officers, uh, colonial mm. officers. So, so for us, you know, we took inspiration from the fact that, you know, people need, knew that they needed to rise up and you have to disrupt. And sometimes that disruption requires, uh, you know, the, the necessary violence at times. Um, mm. Although we haven't resorted to that. Um, I'm conscious of, of, of speaking about violence here particularly as a Muslim as well. Um, so, yeah, so we recognised those histories and we just thought, you know, this is something we need, we, we want to put together, which we did. And then, um, so we see ourselves as an organising group because the 10 of us have our, if you want to say, Monday to Friday, nine to five jobs that we do. And then in our separate time, we're trying to do, um, you know, other activities with, with communities. And one of them is this campaign, Save Book Lane uh, campaign. Now, this campaign came... We got a call from a from a local politician um, who I'm not going to name, uh, but yes, yeah, so we got a call from a local politician who happens to be also politically aligned with our uh, sort of principles and values. Called us and said, "Listen, um, Inter Hamlets Council, the Truman Brewery, um, uh, the family are known as the Zulu family. So the Zulu brothers uh, have submitted a, an application to." Um, to build a multi-story sort of shopping mall, which will have office spaces, retail units, it will have a gym, it will have cafes, 
Um, and they're trying to open that bang in the middle of Brick Lane. Um, and we need to fight against this because this will completely, uh, you know, disrupt, um, you know, the landscape of, of Brick Lane. So we thought, okay, cool. Well, let's meet some of the other community organisations in East London because we're not from the East End. We're a national organisation, but about half of Nijamanush are from Tahamlis, you know, and proportionally that makes sense uh, since the biggest Bangladeshi community outside of Bangladesh is in East London. Um, so we we came together. So, so the so the organisations. This was last April, May, by the way. Yeah. Um, so seven organi- Initially, it was about four, five organisations. And then um, we thought, okay, we need to map out different strategies, different methods on how we challenge this. So by the end of last year, one of the things we did was uh, we put together some template letters and we asked people to submit their objections to the council directly. And at the time, it was a a man called Patrick Hemsworth, who was um, sort of uh, the head of, uh, I think it was the planning committee or the planning um, committee. section of of, of the council um so it was patrick hemsworth so we put this template letter and 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 we we ended up getting uh we ended up uh, managing to organize about seven over seven thousand people to submit um uh uh, objections to tahamit's council once that happened because we couldn't organize in person because of the lockdowns um in the uk we then in um we then uh assemble came on board now assemble studio are an organization um who work around land land rights in London. They, they work around land. So Assemble acquired uh, this property on 25 Princeton Street, one of the streets just off Brick Lane, um, and it's called House of Annetta. Now, Annetta Pedretti uh, was a Swiss-Italian woman who lived in this house, and she was like this like radical activist. And um, she passed away in 2018, and, um, she, uh, and the house was left to a foundation in Switzerland. Now, obviously, the foundation was like, look, we can't do anything from Switzerland. So um, Assemble acquired the property and Annetta made it very clear she never wants her property to go onto the commercial market, that her property needs to be used for the community, by the community, for organising and mobilising. And uh, and this is the property I referenced, which is worth three million pounds because it's bang in the middle of Princess Street. And uh, so Assemble came on board and Assemble were like, look, use our use the house. Like use the house and um, you know do what you need to do. Use it for you know printing leaflets, for organising, for meetings, whatever. So that's HQ is it now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That became the headquarters of the Say Brooklyn campaign. Yeah. And, um, so the other organisations are the East End Preservation Society. Then we had Spitterfields Trust. We had Spitterfields Life. We had the Bengali East End Heritage Society. Nidra Manush. We had uh, the East End Trades Guild. Uh, who are quite a significant group in East London because they represent over 300 businesses across Hackney, wow. uh, the borough of Hackney, borough of Newham and Tower Hamlets. And then we had Assemble. So the seven of us came together and by March we were meeting in person because things were um, relaxing with the rules around meeting up. So uh, we started meeting up in House of Aneta and mapping out what do we do. So our first thing was a direct action where we did banner drops off the railway bridge. Uh, so we did one facing north of uh, Brick Lane in um, Yiddish and English, again, to commemorate and remember the Yiddish and Jewish history of the of, of the um, lane. South end of Brick Lane, we dropped the banner in Bangla and English, uh, again, to, com- uh, to to remember the uh, the current community. And then we did another banner drop bang in the middle of Brick Lane. And then following that, we started lobbying and canvassing the businesses. Now, if you know Brick Lane, it's a very long lane with lots of businesses. So we split into two groups. And um, so I was a part of the team that covered South End of Brick Lane. The other team did North. And we convinced 90 businesses, so 90 businesses to oppose this application, which worked in our favour because we submitted this to the planning uh, planning committee. 
and, and they deferred the decision for the application based on the letter we submitted. And then after that, we thought, okay, it's been deferred, good, which means we've bought more time. Now yeah. we need to canvas the residents. So what we did was we started, we got a um, map of uh, the two key wards around Brick Lane, which is the Weavers Ward and then Spitterfields and Bangladesh Ward. And that's when we started targeting the core councillors in these wards and the residents. And we mapped out all the key estates around the area. So every weekend and those who were available during the week, we would split onto the estates and literally canvas people. So we had uh, uh, leaflets printed in English and Bangla. We would distribute those and we would ask people to sign uh, a, an actual physical letter to object to, the, to, the, um, to, to this application. And, um, and we tried to also be strategic in making sure we were in pairs and at least one person spoke Bengali, um, you know, because there are a lot of people who we needed to communicate with in Bengali. And, um, and honestly, it was incredible. Four months of intense canvassing. We went across like all these estates, you know, um, you know, the famous estate being the Chicksand estate. We covered a whole section of Chicksand estate, um, various of the other estates. And um, it was just incredible meeting people and, and, and talking to people at their doorsteps, you know, and people invited us into their homes, offered us teas, you know, and coffees and, and biscuits and, and food. And it was just incredible because, um, you know, what, what we saw and what was really quite saddening, actually, was seeing how people felt so defeated and hopeless of like, we have no power to change things politically. And it's like, actually, mm -hmm. you do. Yeah. And this is where we realise, you know, this sort of the, the, the lack of sort of people power is because of how much faith um, structures or rather how much faith councils will make you believe you should have in them in right. trying to manage things for you. Oh, mm -hmm. you've got an issue with your with this particular thing in the borough. Oh, we'll sort it out. And of yeah. course, we know that's not how it works. Like you have to fight for it. You have yeah. to turn up. You have to fight. You have to organise rallies, demos. You have to organise the people on your estate. So what we did was, um, you know, we started talking to people. We're like, look, this is what you what 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 can be done. And um, and, and also in that period, we organised three major rallies, and we brought local residents, traders, people, activists who who gave speeches, spoke about you know what the change would mean to them, how it would affect them, and um, and it was incredible. Honestly, I've never seen anything like this of of, of people coming together. We even had private meetings. We managed to bring in um, Apsana Begum. Massive shout out to the MP from Poplar Limehouse who gave us her support from day one. Rushnara Ali, the MP for Brick Lane area. She's a, um, a MP for Bethnal Green and Bow. She was very, um, took some time to get her on board, uh, but we, we got there in the end. Uh, she, she backed us. And I think that's where we managed to get the council to take us a lot more seriously. And I think, um, and this is really an important point for us, is we ended up having a private meeting with Mayor John Biggs. Now, when John Biggs met us at House of Aneta, he saw uh, all these different groups coming together. Now, I want to give you a bit of an aesthetic background of who all these people are. Now, Spitterfields Trust is made up, made up of very posh people, mostly white. In fact, they're all white. Uh, very posh people. Um, they could be, you know, they could be characters in the crown. Like, that's how they speak, okay. you know. Um, very aristocratic uh, sounding, very posh, but very much on the left end of um, yeah, the political spectrum. Then you have the Eastern Preservation Society, which is made up, made up of uh, a mixture of sort of local, uh, mostly white working class individuals. Then you have the Bengali Eastern Heritage Society made up of people who work in the arts sector, mostly Bengalis uh, who are on this. Nijamanush is obviously 10 of us who are Bengalis. 
Then you have um, Assemble Studio, which is made up of a variety of people who work on land and know, um, uh, like, uh, who have background architecturally and also legally in sort of land and land rights. And um, then you had um, Spitavia's Life, who is um, uh, a gentleman famous blogs in the East End called um, Spitavia's Life. He's known as the gentle author. So he was on board, who was also um, uh, a, a sort of... Uh, uh, you know, middle-class middle class white man. Um, so my point here is, and also we got local politicians who backed us. We had two councillors on board. We had uh, quite a few of the traders on Brick Lane on board and came to this meeting. So I think when, when John Biggs sat there and saw all of us, mm. a coalition mm. of people um, of literally, you know, these some, some mm. you know, I mean, some of us in that room were literally poor Bengalis, working class Bengalis. And then you had on the other end of the spectrum, you had people who, sounded like they were friends with Prince Charles yeah. in the same room and everything in between. And I think, you know, and this is where, you know, when we look at the history of, um, you know, for example, Fred Hampton, his, you know, when he tried to bring um, people together, right, um, of, 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 of trying to bring in the white uh, communities and the, and, and the sort of Latino communities. And, um, you know, and it reminded me of that, I remember, because, you know, for him, it must have been the most unusual thing to see all of us in this one yeah. room being like, you need to stop this application yeah. because this is what it's going to do. And, um, and I think the aesthetic power in that was what really shook him. And, um, and following that meeting, he agreed for us to su submit a, a community-led master plan of the area that the Zalou family own. And okay. just to give you an idea of what they own, they own um, most of Spitterfields. Wow. And it's worth up to uh, £700 million. So we're talking about an incredibly wealthy family, right? Yes. Who own a significant amount of Spitterfields. So I don't know if people pay attention when they're walking down Commercial Street or Brick Lane. As soon as you see TB, Truman Brewery, that is owned by them. A lot of the uh, Urban Outfitters, the headquarters of Urban Outfitters, which is in the Truman Brewery site, owned by uh, um, that whole site where you have Urban Outfitters is owned by, by, by the Truman Brewery family, the, the Zalou family. So, so, you know, we put forward that master plan Despite having done that, you know, sadly, we were not successful. Um, you know, our last rally was in the form of a funeral procession. We had a coffin. On the coffin, we had a water lily because water lily is the uh, national flower in, of Bangladesh to, to sort of signify and symbolically showcase that basically it's the death of the Bengali community in the East End. And we all wore black um, at this uh, uh, rally. And, um, and in September, they had the meeting and, and, and it was approved uh, by two councillors uh, and one councillor voted against it. And, uh, but we're still, the battle goes on because we're legally currently um, seeking to challenge them. Uh, we're in contact with the lawyers who just emailed us yesterday um, confirming there are grounds and they're gonna, we're going to arrange a meeting with them soon. Then we've also been trying to target um, Sadiq Khan, so the mayor of London, his office, and to get him to intervene to um, call in the application. So those are the two key avenues uh, we're sort of seeking right now. But um, but it's been it's been an incredible learning lesson of just sort of, organizing with the community and, and learning and meeting wonderful people, mm. meeting incredible people. And uh, in the end, we got over 550 signatures from residents just from these two wards. And, um, and these are physical signatures. I try to always emphasize that it wasn't yeah, just an online petition. It was a case of standing up people's, you know, standing in people's, you know, sitting in people's living rooms or standing at their front doors and talking to them for 10, 15 minutes, what's happening, how it's going to affect them you know, and then getting their signature. So um, it's been an incredible journey. And, um, and and one of the other things that I've taken away is how 
you know, and particularly now with with what we're seeing in the news with the death of 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 uh, people at the uh, you know Channel Crossing. Yes. Is um so you know this idea of you know why don't they stay in their in their first you know safe country you know, and 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 one of the things I've been thinking about is sort of you colonize most of the world the vast majority of the world speaks english why are you surprised that people don't want to culturally be able to arrive in a country where they speak the language mm. you know and people have the right to choose where they want to go to mm. you know and it made me think about you know when we were canvassing you know a lot of families you know they spoke english some elders spoke broken english so they prefer to break things down in bengali and they were speaking about gentrification they were speaking about imperialism colonialism in bengali and what i just found you know astounding is a lot of these individuals will probably never be given any attention because of their you know broken english or you know their accented english and therefore somehow seeing them as they don't know the world they don't understand as if english becomes the arbiter of sort of truth and 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 reality but yeah. but a lot of these people spoke to us in bengali and spoke about these issues and just because people don't use terms like gentrification of an area that doesn't mean they're not speaking about gentrification mm. you know so i think you know that th- that was incredible and and it also became like a language intensive course for me those four months because i had to also keep up with my vocab and ask my parents like how do you say this how do you say this how do i break this down yeah. so it was, it was incredible so for many of us bengalis on this on this campaign we you know it was a, an intensive course for us to practice our own bengali and improve it and break things down and um Did- and all i can say Sorry, yeah. So, no, I was just going to ask you, did you um did you encounter any people that were like saying the opposite, saying Oh, many, oh, no, many. Yeah, this is going to be good for the you know, because this is obviously the argument that we hear, right? Whenever there's any sort of huge development project, it's like this is going to bring jobs to the area, it's going to create more employment, it's going to create more uh foot flow. Um is that the right word that I'm looking Football. for? Footfall, that's the word. Yeah, it's yeah. going to create footfall. I, I, there's always a term that they use. So there's going to create footfall and it's going to, you know, boost the area. And, you know, we know we know the, the language that we hear around these things. Yeah. So did you get some people saying, we well, did. you know, Sadly, this is actually yeah. going to be a good thing? Yeah. yeah. And so um, what, we got that from a lot of people. What do you respond to those people who say, well, we could do with more business. We could do with more offices in the area. We could do with regeneration. Um. Oh God, we had we had yeah we, we we had a lot of discussions. Some ending up in arguments with people about this. Mm. Um, so a lot of trade. We there are a lot of there are traders who didn't support us. Um, and the funny thing is, even when I go onto Brick Lane, you know, and I see these uncles, you know, they still you know offer me their salams. You know, they offer to feed me in their restaurants for free, uh, even though politically we don't see eye to eye. God bless um, them. You know, so um, but there is, uh, you know, uh, one restaurant, they don't support us, but I go there often to eat, eat you know, and, uh, and someone said to me, you know, you know, why is it you guys still go there if they don't back you? And I was like, well, that's because at the core of this campaign is care for the community and about the community. And I can't just suddenly like push like we. So it's not just about me here, because we as a collective are like, well, we can't push these people away now. Because they're still part of this community, of right? Um, but they've, you know, they have bought into the f- belief, the faith that if this multi-story office space, shopping mall, you know, that they're trying to build happens, of course, we're going to get more footfall. And we've obviously tried to have these discussions with these uncles and be like, actually, that's not what happens. Like, look at what happened to Westfields. Look at Stratford. You know, that's the dream that was sold to people about the Olympics, that yeah. they will do this, you're going to do this. And, you know, like one of my cousins married into a family who used to live on 
by um, where the shopping centre is, but they were then moved out to um, uh, Plasto, so Upton Park area, because, mm-hmm. because you know, um, they wanted to regenerate the area because they wanted to make it look a particular way and preferably without people who look like me in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we, we try to explain to people that, look, you know, that's not how it works. Look at what happened in, in Brixton. Look at what's happening in Shepherd's Bush. Look at Tottenham, how they try to fight the Latin uh, Colombian community, you know, the, the, the Latin village yes. in, in Seven Sisters. Oh, and, and they won after a 17-year battle, they won. Yeah. So, um, so we try to give them tangible examples that's happening across London and how it's impacting other working class communities, right. majority who happen to be racialized communities. So, um, uh, you know, so, so a lot of these uncles were just, just not buying it. That's the only way I can put it. They, they yeah. really believe the footfall means more business for them. Yeah. And, um, and, 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 and we've also tried to have the discussion with them about how, you know, um, you know, the COVID has exposed that, first of all, office spaces are redundant, you know, what what is it? What do they even mean anymore? So if they go ahead to build that, who is that for? And all these independent businesses that they're, you know, an ind- we were looking at the definition of independent businesses, actually. And an independent business is one where you have less than 250, uh, 250 employees. Still quite a large number. Yeah, and that yeah. could be a franchise of a McDonald's around the corner that wow, can declare yeah. itself as independent because it has less than 250 employees. It's like Yeah, it's yeah. it's quite huge. I mean, I don't know what the average is, but I can think of like a local business uh, downstairs for me that are actually unfortunately closing. Uh, a, a lovely Algerian guy that I've known since I was a kid, his shop's closing uh, partly due to Brexit flows and different conversation. But anyway, uh, yeah, three employees. Yeah. Yeah, because you and I, when we think of independent, we think of a family-run bakery, maybe, we can walk into, and if we need to speak to the manager, the manager's at the back doing the accounts or something, right? She is here, he is there, we can talk to them, you know, have a chit-chat, but that's not the definition of independent. So so we were trying to break those things down to them that, look, this is what's going to happen. And also, um, if and, and, and so I don't know if you've seen the bridge of the Truman Brewery where they have that eagle, their eagle logo. They want to turn that little bridge into like a like a little quirky hipster restaurant. So we also try to break break it down to the uncles that, look, people are interested when it comes to food now. It's about experience. It's about different cuisines and different palates. People's understanding of, the South, of South Asian food has changed. It's yeah. not longer about going to have that vindaloo or korma. People know about like street food now. People know what can, what is a good South Asian street food. You know, if you want to eat particular Pakistani street food, this is where you go. This is the right. kind of street food you eat. So we've tried to also explain that, you know, people's understandings of South Asian cuisines have changed. People know regional food now. People know that dosa is South Indian and from Sri Lanka, you know. They know that that's not something you will find in North Indian restaurants. If you go to a Punjabi restaurant, why would a Punjabi serve you dosa, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so, so we, we, we also try to break those things down to uncles and, and about sort of people's sort of health consciousness as well, you know. Um, but they were just not interested, you know. And we were trying to explain when they have these quirky cafes opening up in that bridge in particular, people want that experience of being on a bridge looking down on Brick Lane. You know, yeah. because it's quirky, they're going to invite influencers, you know, to come Quite and take their, you know, exactly. So, uh, you know, we, we literally tried every angle, social, economic, environmental, because there is an environmental issue with, with the building, actually, which is one of the elements that the lawyers are working on. Um, so we've tried, but um, they, they, they really are fixated on yeah. um, football. Football, football. is, well, that's the word they kept throwing at us. I'm, I'm 
I'm not surprised if I'm honest, because I, I think that's probably for businesses, especially at a time that's been so hard on, you know, tough for small businesses. I can, you know, you, I guess, you know, and it's, it's, it's beautiful the way that you're able to empathize even with them at a time where I think so much political discussion is often pitched in terms that are so polarized that it's mm. almost like the person that doesn't agree is your enemy. And it's just, you know, actually, honestly, really refreshing to hear mm. the reality of actually, you know, away from the social media version of activism, mm. when you're on the ground and arguing yeah, yeah. with someone that you genuinely care about their future, mm. even if they do disagree with you, that doesn't have to take... See, the thing is, because these uncles see us in their restaurants, because we eat in their restaurants. Yeah. And, um, and, and, yeah. and we try to show them that, look, you know, when we say we care, like, this is what it is, we're giving you our money, you know, yeah. because yeah. that's what you're looking for, football. So we will try wherever possible to when we come together so after one of the rallies about 20 of us went to eat in a restaurant in on brick lane uh, and that's a business that doesn't support us mm. 20 of us went and we spent close to about 250 pounds because it was almost um yeah um, because we ordered ch loads of food and, and, and i've had and the funny thing with that business is though the uncle there, there were two owners of this of this restaurant so one uncle in a personal capacity supports us he said but i can't come out in public because it would seem like i'm undermining my my um uh, co-partner yeah. because he he doesn't back it publicly because right. he's, he's he's given an interview to gq magazine on, on save brick lane saying that i don't back it so okay. he's like you know so i've got to be conscious of my livelihood because you know this is what pays you know of my course. kids you know trips and all of so so yeah. we, we're also cognizant of the fact that okay there's only so much we can hardly you know like be hard on these uh, individuals yeah so, um you know so in that sense um you know we, we've been trying to, we, we've been trying to have these conversations in a way where it doesn't become antagonistic and hostile and um and also because you know all of us we 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 care about these communities because a lot of us have connections to these areas we have families there our own families are you know, impacted by it. So I think, um, you know, um, it's, 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 it wasn't easy though. Obviously in this conversation, it's sounding like it was easy. It's not. No, no, it there doesn't were moments of frustration. <laughs> there were moments of where I just wanted to like, you know. I, it's, yeah. I, I think anyone that's done any form of canvassing knows how difficult it is. And it's actually so rare these days for people to really take it upon themselves to begin these kind of grassroots campaigns and uh, and to follow them through in the way that you have. So um, I guess it's watch this space in terms of the next chapter for the Say Brick Lane campaign. Yeah, yeah. Um, for us, I'm going to have to jump us through to the quick fire round. Uh, sure, if that's sure, no right worries. Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, tell me, what is your definition of whiteness? Oh, wow. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow, ooh, okay. Um, what is my definition of whiteness? Okay, um, so whiteness is something we need to understand away from the phenotype white, which is people, you know, people end up associating with particular skin tones, um, because whiteness can be embodied by those who are on the darker end of the, you know, skin tone spectrum, if you want to say. So, for example, for me, in the UK context, our current Home Secretary embodies whiteness. So Preeti Patel, a woman of Indian Gujarati origin or East African Asian uh, Gujarati origin, to me embodies whiteness. Mm -hmm. Just as much as Kamala Harris, who is half um, Tamil, half um, Jamaican. Is it Jamaican? Her dad's Jamaican. Um, you know, so, so for me, you know, I think, yeah, the definition is to look beyond how we have constructed ideas of someone being white away from whiteness. Okay. Um, is gentrification a form of whiteness? Oh, definitely. 
Yeah, um, quick response, yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you regard as the root of racism? Roots of racism? Um, you know, so the first example I think of is, is, is the Islamic uh, uh, sort of argument of, of sort of ego and arrogance. Because when we look at, you know, uh, in, in the sort of Islamic theological standpoint is that, you know, uh, when Adam was created, you know, um, God asked um, uh, the, the, the angels um, to, to sort of bow down to him. And, and you know, the, the, the one who didn't was uh, Iblis, or known as uh, Satan, Shaitan, um, out of arrogance of, you know, I'm made of fire and he's made of... Um, I'm superior. Mm-hmm. I'm superior, I'm better, I'm above. Yeah. Um, so, so, so ego and arrogance. I, I, but, but for me, that, that, that understanding of racism stems from my own sort of uh, religious understanding of it as well. Mm. What do you regard as the opposite of whiteness? I feel like whiteness operates so overtly and covertly in every aspect of life and society that in order to create something alternative, we still have to work with whiteness and within whiteness. So I'm not sure there is one, although... There could be one. I don't know. So, so yeah, that's my response. Um, is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? See, I think even that question itself can only be um, uh, discussed within a particular, particularly within the Western Hemisphere, because that's not that's not a priority or a conversation for example, in the subcontinent, in the Indian subcontinent, the questions, you know, the, the post-racial society would be marked by the post-caste society, right? So I think, you know, it, it can never be universal because that's not a priority or that's not the operating force within other parts of the globe. So, you know, um, so I think, I think, you know, that specifically applies to the Western Hemisphere. Um, and um, uh, can it ever exist or, or come about? Um, I, I don't think it will. Um, Things are far too deeply embedded in things and structures and we would have to start from scratch. And I don't think that will happen until there's an apocalypse and we all basically die. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <that> then. <laughs> um, is uh, whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? It is and it isn't because sometimes I feel like it sometimes boils it down to re- and, and, and almost trivializes sometimes. Um, so, for example, you know, uh, like white fragility, for example, like I, I, I appreciate the intervention and why sometimes white people need to understand it. But also from the other end, as someone who is, you know, a, a uh, you know, a, a, a woman of color, you know, a, a Muslim woman of color as well, it's like it almost just trivializes it to just sort of the interpersonal only, you know, as if, you know, because of my presence or let's say, I don't know. I wear something, I wear a sari with a bindi and someone is fragile to ask me about, oh, so what does it mean to wear a bindi? You know, it, it, you know, it's, 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 you know, uh, yeah. So for me, it just, just presents racism sometimes in a way where it can just be solved within the interpersonal and it can't be, you know, it's, it's really not that uh, straightforward because racism isn't just about that interpersonal. Um, so yeah these are hard questions you know uh, they are they are <laughs> yeah um, so yeah well 
Thank you for considering them. Um, uh, if people want to connect with you and your work, your ideas, is there a particular location you'd like to direct them to? Is there a website or Twitter, Instagram? Sure. So I have um, so I have my profile on the on De Montford um, Stephen Lawrence Research Centre's uh, website. So if you just type in my, my my first name and surname, it will come up. Otherwise, you can find me on um, Instagram or uh, Twitter by the same uh, handle, Fatima Regina. Um, and yeah, that's where I tend to vent and rant. And uh, uh, you're welcome to uh, be uh, privy to all those moments. <laughs> and if people want to keep up to date with the Save Brick Lane campaign, yes, is there yes. a particular website? Oh, then for that, I would definitely recommend Jamanush because, um, you know, sometimes it's not me doing the social media stuff, it's others. Since there's 10 of us, we split it between us. Um, so, yeah, if you want to know and, and keep up with uh, Save Brick Lane, then I would definitely recommend uh, Nijo Manush. And then from Nijo Manush, you can find the other organisations involved as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for your time and all of your insights. Oh, really for having me. Thank you. Um, I want to thank uh, all of our listeners for tuning into this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much.